0: Are you thankful for Jesus tonight? Truly without Him, how lost we would be. And uh, this evening, I'm just excited to be able to share with you once again from God's Word. Are you enjoying studying prophecy? Yes, enjoying uh, looking at these books of Daniel and Revelation? We have some very, very exciting messages, uh, topics coming up, lectures coming up over the next uh, few nights and um, into next weekend. Um, We're going to be looking at subjects from Daniel. Remember, we looked at Daniel chapter 1, Daniel chapter 2, and Daniel chapter 3 so far. Uh, We're going to be uh, next week again looking at the, I believe it's next weekend, we'll be looking at Daniel chapter 7, the next major prophecy in uh, the book of Daniel. But tonight we're going to be looking once again at the uh, book of Revelation. We're going to be looking at some of the uh, main issues, one of the main issues of the book of Revelation um, we touched on it when we, t- when we spoke about the first angel's message of Revelation 14, and um, we're gonna be looking in more detail at that tonight. So I'm excited to get into our topic and to get started. Um, when we think of the world we live in, we have to remember that uh, it's very, very busy, isn't it? Anyone here had a busy week? Yeah, had a busy week? There was a famous uh, biology a researcher and professor by the name of Huxley, who was a, uh, I believe he was from Cambridge, England. He was a British uh, biologist, Thomas Huxley. He arrived in a city by train late. Uh, he had to make it to a lecture, and so quickly he rushed out onto, from the platform out onto the street. He, he hailed a a, a a cab, which in those days, of course, would have been pulled by a team of horses, or at least a horse. He hailed a cab, and um, in a frenzy he yelled up at the driver top speed and the driver cracked his whip and they took off away from the train station pounding down the road top speed carriage swaying from side to side and huxley settled back into his seat quite content and relieved that they were on their way and then all of a sudden he sat bolt upright and he yelled to the driver wait do you know where we're going and the driver said no but i'm going as fast as i can well, you know, that's sort of like the world we live in today, isn't it? We live in a world where we're going fast, and many people don't really know why or where we're going. They just know it's fast, and they're working hard, and there's this, this endless cycle of, of um, going to bed late and getting up early and, and working long hours and having more to do than we have time to do it in. And so when I think of all of these uh, things when i think of how busy the world is i'm especially glad that god has given us a message from his word aren't you and a message from his word we're gonna be looking at this message tonight because i think it's an a a especially important and uh, meaningful message for a world that is frenzied for a world that is fast and furious for a world that is going headlong as fast as it can but not sure where it's headed what the direction it's headed in. Well, I believe God wants us to know what direction we're headed. So we're going to look in the book of Revelation one more time tonight. Revelation chapter 13, remember we touched on this when we talked about the great golden image of Daniel chapter 3 and how Revelation borrows that story and talks about how spiritual Babylon, the Antichrist power called Babylon in the book of Revelation, will once again at the end of time, just like ancient Babylon did, create an image along with some of the other powers that we're going to have to look at in more detail. But notice, let's just look at a couple of verses here. Um, If we look in, for example, in verse 8, talking about the first beast, the Antichrist beast of Revelation chapter 13, we see in Revelation 13 8, and all that dwell upon the earth shall, what does it say? Revelation 13 8, all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. Now, who's the him talking about? I know we haven't really looked at it here, but this is not talking about worshiping the Creator, not talking about worshiping Jesus, not talking about worshiping God. This is actually talking about a beast who persecutes God's people. Uh, and a beast simply means a power, right? That's a, and we'll be looking at that in, in our study of Daniel chapter 7. Remember, Daniel unlocks the meaning of of revelation. So here it says um, in verse 7, back up so you know that I'm talking. In fact, let's just back up to verse 6 so you know that I'm speaking the truth. The Bible doesn't make it at all ambiguous here. Verse 6 says, He opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. Do you see the global influence of this power? Do you notice? Power was given him over all what? Kindreds and tongues and nations. Now, some of your translation is going to read a little differently. You might read nations and tribes and and languages, something like that. But the whole earth is brought under the sway of this power. And verse 8 is the astounding part. It says, and all that dwell on the earth shall worship him. Now, if it stopped there, it would be very discouraging, wouldn't it? If it just said, all that dwell on the earth shall worship this guy, this, this power, you, would be, you and I would be very discouraged because, because, I well, Revelation isn't supposed to be a discouraging book, right? It's supposed to give us hope. Notice that's not the end of the sentence. All that dwell on the earth shall worship Him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So there's a, an exception to this. It's very clear from the context here. When we read what it says, these, this, this power is given uh, influence over all nations and, and languages and tongues and tribes, and all that dwell on the earth shall worship Him except, right? It's pretty clear the majority are going to be doing what? Worshiping this beast. Isn't that pretty clear from this? Am I just making that up, or is that what the Bible says? What the Bible says, right? All that dwell on the earth will worship Him, except it seems like the preponderance of people, the population of earth, the majority are going to be deceived or willfully choosing to worship. We're not, uh, not, uh, not, not, I, I hope that you and I aren't in that group, don't you? If we skip down to verse. 13. We talk about a second beast. We looked at this a little bit, and this is when we talked about the image that's created. A, 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 an image that represents that first beast, and the world is going to be asked to worship it. Look at me with verse, with me at verse 12. I'm sorry, Revelation 13, verse 12. He exercised all the power of the first beast before him. That was a global power, right? And caused the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Well, who wants to worship that first beast? I don't want to, right? In fact, many people might not want to, and if those who aren't willing to worship the first beast, well, they're going to have some convincing to be done, right? And this is the convincing, verse 13. He does great signs and wonders so that he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. Do you know that you cannot trust miracles as evidence that God is behind a certain movement or power? You can't. The Bible is very clear in the book of Revelation that that the uh, the deception at the end of time, there are miracles which deceive the world. And he deceives, verse 14, those who dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an, what's the word there? An image to the beast which had a wound by a sword and did live. And he gave power, and you notice that those who would not worship the image should be killed. Now that sounds pretty dire, doesn't it? It sounds pretty pretty frightful except we remember that exception right all the dwell on the earth shall worship him except those whose names are written in the lamb's book of life remember that now what i want you to see tonight and what we're going to focus on we're not focusing on this because this is just a fact it's going to happen but that's not what's important what's important is god's response to this remember the beast has a global message a global power the second beast has all the power of the first beast they, they, he, the, they, they cause the world to worship the beast, and if you don't want to worship the beast, you can worship the image of the beast. And if you won't do either, you're going to be killed, just like, or at least there's going to be a decree that you should be killed, just like on the plain of Dura. You're going to uh, be cast into this fiery furnace. And who's that God that can save you out of my hand? Remember what Agent Babylon said? By the way, friends, before I, before I move on to God's solution here in Revelation 14, remember God protected His faithful people when they chose to honor and obey Him. When the fear of God was in those three Hebrew-worthy hearts, Jesus went with them into the furnace and nothing, not even the hair of their head was singed. We don't have to be worried about this. I would be f- afraid reading Revelation 13 if I hadn't <laughs> studied Daniel 3 because Daniel 3 is where this story comes from, right? And God's people were saved. God's people were protected. So notice with me Revelation 14. We're going to start in Revelation 14, verse 6, because this, we've set the stage for what is happening at the, er, on the earth at the end of time. There's a great deception, miracles being done. People are going to be worshiping the false uh, power, not the where they should be worshiping, and um, not he who they should be worshiping. And notice with me the the, uh, the answer to this This great deception at the end of time. Verse 6, Revelation 14, verse 6. I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to them that dwell on the earth, to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, what does he say first? Fear. Fear God. What's the fear of God? Being more concerned about what God says than what man says, right? Seeking His approval above man's approval. Fear God, give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him, who made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. So what we see here, friends, this is exciting. Because the beast says you've got to worship the you've got to worship the beast or the image. If you don't, there's going to be a decree that you should be put to death. And on the other hand, while while there's this one message saying worship the beast, there's another message going throughout the entire earth you notice that the that the scope of the message in revelation 14 is the same scope as the influence of the beast power in revelation 13 did you notice that the beast has power over every nation kindred tribe and people and the message goes to every nation kindred tribe and people and so you have the same you have the same people groups the same geography you might say being influenced why because god is not going to let the world be deceived without a warning He's not going to let this world just go into the hands of the enemy, the Antichrist, without Christ being uplifted before the world. And so he says, fear God, give glory to Him, and worship, who does it say? I'm getting a little ahead of my slides here, aren't I? It says, then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment has come and worship who? Who does it say? Him worship Him who made. Worship the Creator. So here you have the great conflict, the great test. It's all coming down to this one decision at the end of time. This seems to be the very last decision Choices that mankind has to make. Remember, it's all about this great controversy, conflict between the the rebellious angel Lucifer, now we know as Satan, and the wonderful Redeemer of Jesus, Jesus Christ. Satan is selfish, self-seeking. He wanted more power. He wanted more influence. Jesus is unselfish. He was willing to stretch out his arms and die on Calvary's tree for you and me, right? So there's this conflict going on, and this conflict comes to a head. When the whole world, not just three people on the plain of Dura, not just Daniel and his friends in Babylonian courts, not just, and we could go through all the different people, Abel at at his altar and and Daniel uh, or Joseph in Potiphar's house. One by one, God's people throughout time have been tested and they had to make the decision, who am I going to obey, right? But in the last days, in a general sense, the world is brought to this test. And you and I, if we're alive, and I, I sort of hope we're alive, because I want to see these things happen with my own eyes. I want to see these prophecies be fulfilled. I believe they will be. I mean, I've seen those prophecies, how they've been fulfilled. If they've been fulfilled so faithfully, they're going to continue to be fulfilled. So I, you and I may be privileged to see with our own eyes the world called to make a decision. Which side are we on? Who are we going to fear? Are we going to fear God? Are we going to obey God? Are we going to glorify God? Whose side are we on? That's the showdown that Revelation brings to my, my uh, consciousness, and it's all about worship. Worship is the central issue in Revelation 13 and Revelation 14. Who are you going to worship? Pretty serious, isn't it? Pretty serious. Now, if we, if we, if we uh, look at this verse more closely, We're going to find that there is a this part of the verse remember we said that 75 percent of revelation is a direct quote or pretty much a direct quote from the old testament and we've seen how we've seen a number of places how that's true and when we go back in the old testament we then have a key to help understand what revelation is talking about right well guess what this phrase here him who made heaven and earth the sea and the springs of water is almost a verbatim quote from the Old Testament. Do you know where that's quoted from? Let's look and see. So we've looked already at this passage. We've looked at how the fear of God, what the fear of God means. We've seen what it means to give glory to Him. We've seen for the hour of His judgment has come. Tonight, we're going to look in more detail at what this part means. It says, worship the Creator. Worship the Creator. Well, how are we to worship the Creator? Did you know that God gave us something to remind us And to be a part of our worship, to remind us of creation and to help us in our worship so that we would always remember where we came from. God gave us a reminder, sort of like an anniversary. Um, Husbands, you know what it's like to um, remember or to forget your anniversary, right? And um, so, thankfully, God didn't just give us a, a a yearly reminder that we are created by God; we're in His image. God actually gave us a more frequent reminder, one that if we remembered, we would always know where we came from and where we were going as human beings. We would have purpose in our lives. And that re- weekly reminder is what He called the Sabbath. He gave us a weekly reminder right at the end of creation week, and many people have forgotten what this reminder is, but... but. Uh, To discover more about it, we're going to have to go back and review what we talked about a few nights ago when we talked about Creation Week, all right? We're not going to go back and read all of Genesis 1 and uh, the first few verses of Genesis 2, but we'll remember that God created the world in six days, right? And um, we believe that. I believe that. That's what the Bible says. Psalm 33, 6 through 9, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of His mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the depths in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the earth stand in awe of Him. Why? For He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The Word of God has power. Isn't that amazing? I love to to think of this because if God's Word can create this earth as we see it today, then God's Word has power still to recreate a new heart in my life this is an amazing truth now if god doesn't have the power to do anything except what can be done by naturalistic means then i don't have much confidence that he can change his heart of mine but if god can speak and worlds come into existence it's not too hard for him to save my soul from sin i have to believe that he is able even to save me even to save me and so i do believe that there was a big bang theory as i said god spoke and bang it happened right that's that's what took place when when God spoke. In fact, you know, um, the way God's God's word is, it's so powerful that you know, if I were to say, if I were to say that is an elephant, most of you would say it's not. It's a hay bale, right? <laughs> but if God were to say that is an elephant, guess what? It would be an elephant. <laughs> Because that's the, God, God speaks, and it's so, right? And the good news is, God can speak and say, your sins are forgiven, your heart is cleansed, my heart is cleansed, and He has the power to do it as well. I'm so thankful we serve that kind of a God. So we remember, day one, God divided the night. Uh, well, he, 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 he spoke, and there was light. Um, he created the, the day and the night. Day two, he separated the waters that were under the earth and the waters that were above the earth. Um, day three, he, he clothed that gr- dry land which he had made and um, he put living animals, uh, not, not animals, but plants upon it. Day four, he created the st- sun, the moon, the stars and he made the sun to rule the day, the moon to rule the night. Day five, he made the birds and the fish to uh to uh inhabit the the seas and the waters and the air Um, day six he made the animals that um, that creep or that that roam along the earth i guess you might say as well as taking special care to make who in his own image he made mankind he made our first parents in his own image but on the seventh day the bible says he rested from his work let's look at it genesis chapter 2 and we're going to read verses 2 through 4. It says, And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done, and rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. And then God rested on the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it that he had rested from all his work which God had created and made. So Genesis chapter 2 tells us that on the seventh day God made another day. And how did he do it? Did he speak and in a voila, there was a day? God made a day in time by simply doing nothing. We talked about, we talked about how, um, how God could have made a 10-day week. He could have made a 15-day week. Aren't you glad He didn't? Aren't you glad God made this world, as we know it, in six days and He rested the seventh? We also talked about the fact that there's only one reason. That there's only one reason that we have a seven-day week today. There's no celestial signs. There's no patterns in the, in the planets. The only reason we have a seven-day week is because God created in six days and He rested on the seventh. And we can see that in cultures as far back as we want to look. There are very few exceptions. Cultures that don't have any similarities to ours have still observed seven-day weeks. And so this is good evidence, I believe, that uh, God made, as the Bible says, the earth in six days and rested on the seventh. Now the Bible says here that God sanctified or set the seventh day apart, the Sabbath apart. The the word sanctified simply means what? It means to set it aside for a holy use. That's That's how the sanctified is defined. It means to be set aside for a holy use. Now I spend a lot of my life single as a bachelor some people gave up hope on me that i would ever settle down and uh marry and um others still had faith in me and um i'm i'm thankful for that and i you know for 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 all i was concerned i always intended to have a family and and get married someday but i was busy you've heard in some of my stories that i was traveling a lot right and um I logged some three and a half million miles on American Airlines and a lot on other airlines as well. I spent a lot of time traveling to different countries, I think 106 times across the Atlantic and I don't know how many across the Pacific, but a lot of traveling, and that doesn't give a lot of time for, um, you know, social life, I guess you might say. I was just busy, and, and um, finally God brought me to a place in my life where I was slowing down a little bit, and God brought a special young lady into my life as well and many of you know her she was living here in Dalton that's how i ended up being in Dalton actually a f- mutual friend of mine of ours um <laughs> a mutual friend of ours introduced us and we started talking and um anyway to make a long story short because that's not really what i came here to talk about tonight um <laughs> to make a long story short yeah after uh, after a few years uh, Almost a year and a half, two years of dating, courting, we, we, uh, we were married. And here we are with our wedding party. And uh, I, I think this was probably one of the happiest days of my life. Probably there are a few more important decisions um, besides giving your heart to Jesus Christ. There are very few more important decisions than what you're, who you're going to spend the rest of your life with. But here we are. We're, we're on our wedding day. This picture was taken just before our wedding and um, you'll notice we have lots of friends there with us. We have my, my groomsmen and her bridesmaids. Um, but at the end of the wedding, the preacher said something along the lines that, um, you know, um, as a minister of the gospel, by, an author- by the authority of the ministry, uh, as a minister of the gospel, and by authority of the laws of the state of Tennessee, we're actually married in Tennessee, um, The preacher said something along the lines that, um, you know, um, as a minister of the gospel, by by the authority of the minister uh, of the, as a minister of the gospel, and by authority of the laws of the state of Tennessee, we're actually married in Tennessee, um, I pronounce you husband and wife. Now that's, that's pretty exciting to hear that, especially when you've been a bachelor for so long, right? And um, I got to tell you a little secret, Um, I hope this isn't embarrassing to the to my minister, but um, he told us ahead of time, you know, something's not going to go quite right. Something, there's always something in a wedding that doesn't happen quite as planned, and um, he said this is just sort of like fingerprints, you know, you, you have, you have uh, there's something unique, you'll laugh about it someday, you know, um, it's unique. Well, our wedding went off without a hitch. Everything went exactly as planned until the very last sentence. Would you believe it? His fingerprints came from my minister? He said, I, "It is my ple- pleasure to introduce to you, for the very first time, Mr. and Mr. Chester Van Clark III." <laughs> I, I, I think that somehow in his mind he was trying to figure out, see, my wife's a doctor. And I think he was trying to say, well, it's not doctor and missus, but it's not mister and doctor. And I think somehow, somehow he got his, his, his things a little tangled up and um, he very quickly corrected himself. I assure you. Um, And uh, we went on, but we were now pronounced husband and wife. Okay. We had been introduced and no one there would, would forget that introduction. Probably Um, we had been introduced she now was my wife. Why? Because she had been set aside according to the Bible's teachings, according to the laws of the state of Tennessee. She had been set apart from all of the other young ladies in the world. She had been set aside for me. I had been set aside for her. Now, it wouldn't be appropriate for her to say, you know, that was a nice wedding. I'm glad, you know, Chester was standing up here in the center with me, but you know, one of his other groomsmen looks just as good and, and, you know, they were in the wedding too, right? Is that the way it works? I mean, there were six other groomsmen. Can she just take her pick? No, because only one of them had been blessed for her as her husband, right? Only one had been sanctified or set apart from the rest of the men of the world, to be her husband. Only one of those young ladies had been set aside for me. And so when God set aside a day, He made it a special day. He sanctified it. That's what, I didn't say that. That's what the Bible said, right? God sanctified it. He made it holy. Now, can I make a day holy? Can you make a day holy? No, in fact, I don't believe I can even make... I didn't even make Jane my wife. God did. It was in the sight of God that we were married, right? She became my wife because marriage is an institution that God founded right there in the Garden of Eden. In fact, just before He founded the Sabbath day, He created man, husband, and wife. And so I believe that God has set aside this special day for us to be blessed on. It's a special gift. It's not a burden, it's a gift that God has given us. He's made us in six days, six days we're given to work, and the seventh day He's given us to rest. Why? Because we need rest. God knows, Heaven knows we need rest in the world that we live in today. Now, as time went on, we see that this was all the way back at creation. As early as you can get, Genesis chapter 2, we find this special sanctification of the seventh day beginning. We find that God's people forgot. In fact, God's people in Israel, in Egypt, they began worshiping other idols. And you remember when Moses went up in the mountain, they even got discouraged thinking he wasn't coming back. They made a golden calf and said, this is our God. He'll take us To the promised land. Remember that? God's people were much, they'd forgotten much of what they should have known about the truth of the God of heaven. Remember, there was no Bible then. Moses hadn't written the first five books. The prophets hadn't yet written their scrolls or their manuscripts. And so the people had forgotten, and on the way to the Promised Land, God would would teach them who He was. They would teach them that He was the God, the Jehovah God, the Provider God, the Protector God. He was the Creator God. He had a purpose for their life. He had a a reason for them to exist. And He would have to teach them this in many different ways. One time they ran out of food. Well, a couple times they ran out of food as they were in the wilderness those many years. And um, they came to Moses, and Moses didn't know what to do. And so God said, I have a solution. Is anything too hard for God? You take two million or three million or whatever, how many people there were in the, chil- in the camp of Israel. You take them out into the middle of the desert, and you think, how are you going to feed these people? You think you have problems? Moses had problems, all right? Um, I don't have problems compared to what Moses had with trying to lead this camp of Israel through the wilderness And um, the people are hungry, they're angry, you brought us out here to die in the wilderness, and Moses turns to God, and God said, this is not a problem, because I can rain food from heaven. (laughs) Don't you love our God? The Bible says in Exodus chapter 16, then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my, what? my law or not. Well, what's he trying to say that I'll walk in my law or not? Remember, the Ten Commandments weren't given until... Exodus chapter 20, and it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. So this is what God told Moses. Listen, Moses, I'm going to rain bread from heaven. Every day they go out, they collect what they should collect for that day, what they're going to eat for that day, and it'll, it'll be good. They can eat it for lunch and supper or whatever, when they, when, when they eat it. If they, if they leave it overnight, it's going to spoil. And so I think God had a number of things he was trying to teach them here. And I don't want to get too far off the subject here. But I love this story because it really, I think, it really has some practical lessons for us today. There was, some, there were, there was an important lesson that our society should learn today too. If you don't work, you don't what? Eat. Listen, if you wanted to eat that day, you had to get up early and go get it. When the sun came up, it melted. Now, this would teach a nation of slaves who had been used to only working when someone cracked the whip over them to be self-starters, right? If you didn't get out in the morning, get up early and go get your food, it was going to be gone and you were going to be hungry. Well, tomorrow, guess what? You'd get up. Yeah, you would learn. Uh, you wouldn't just keep doing that. I mean, I don't think very many people would. So God is trying to teach them at work ethics. He's trying to teach them a, a good um, habit of early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. That's not biblical, by the way. That's just uh, an expression we use. But it's a good thought, isn't it? Um, God was trying to teach them this. He was also trying to teach them not to be greedy. If you collect too much, it's going to spoil anyway. Just collect what you need. Nothing wrong with sharing that same day, but just collect what you need. Don't be greedy. But, he says, on the sixth day, gather twice as much. Why? Why should they gather twice as much on the sixth day? And um, we're going to find out in just a minute. The reason was because there wasn't going to be any on the seventh day. And so God was going to work a miracle. I mean, he was already working miracles, right? (laughs) Now, that doesn't by itself prove that he's God or that that was of God because the devil can work miracles too. But God here is communicating with Moses. He's giving his prophet Moses his instructions. He's creating a miracle every single day that there's bread from heaven raining out and landing on the ground. It's disappearing as the sun melts it off. That's a miracle. Wouldn't you agree? He's working a miracle. Every day it spoils. You might not think that's a miracle. But on the sixth day... What you kept overnight wouldn't spoil. That seems like a miracle, doesn't it? It does. It really does. So this is what happened. So they gathered it every morning, every man according to his need. And when the sun became hot, it melted. And so it was on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread... Two homers for each one, "'and all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses, "'What do we do with the extra that we gather today?' "'And this is what he told them. "'Then he said to them, "'This is what the Lord has said. "'Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. "'Bake what you will bake today "'and boil what you will boil today "'and lay up for yourselves all the remains "'to be kept until morning.' "'Then Moses said the next day, "'Eat that today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. "'Today you will not find it in the field.' Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. What an amazing story, huh? Well, Sabbath morning came, the seventh day came, and some people went out looking. And God wasn't really happy about that. After all this, after all this, you think they were stubborn? You think we might be stubborn sometimes too? Yeah, it's easy to condemn these Bible characters. But sometimes in our own way, we don't realize that we're doing the same thing. And they went out looking. God said to them, Lord said to Moses, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my law? See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. Do you see what God is trying to do? He's trying to teach them how to rest. Work six days. Be industrious, get up early, right? If a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat, you should get out there and get the manna, but rest the seventh day. God didn't make us as machines to be in perpetual motion. He meant for us to rest. He gave us the Sabbath for that purpose. So we see the Sabbath was a gift given to mankind at creation and kept by God's people even before the law was given at Mount Sinai, Right? But when we look at the Ten Commandments, which we studied last night, which we saw God has given to us as a guardrail, as a guide, to not to save us, we're not saved by keeping the commandments. I think we know that, don't we? We're not going to be saved by not murdering people. We're not going to be saved by not stealing. You can't, you can't, uh, you can't be pulled over by a police officer who said, you were doing 155. And you say, I tell you what, I'll make up for it by keeping the speed limit from now on. It doesn't work that way, right? Obedience doesn't atone for past transgression. That's, this is not, has nothing to do with our salvation. We're talking about how God wants us to live our lives as he has saved us, because he has brought us out of Egyptian captivity, right? Out of Egyptian bondage. That's what we're talking about. And this is the promise. This is the the commandment that we find, the fourth commandment in in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to what? Keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor uh, your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Do you see that phrase that was pulled right out of the fourth commandment and used in in Revelation chapter 14? For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. Uh, Revelation 14 says, "...and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the fountains of water." So, here you find a, a almost verbatim quote. We won't talk about why the changes are, um, but almost a verbatim quote from Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. That is the commandment that God has given us. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. He made it holy. God made it Holy. I can't make it holy. Now, Isaiah says that this is something that is meant to bless all peoples. Notice with me Isaiah 56, verses 6 and 7, because some people will say, but Chester, don't you think the Sabbath was just given to the Jews? Well, there's a couple of reasons why I don't believe that. First of all, how many Jews were around at creation? Technically, there weren't any, right? The Sabbath was made for... Uh, Adam and Eve. It was a gift to Adam and Eve. That was, those were our first parents long before they were Jew. But notice what Isaiah says. Even if we look at the Jewish prophet Isaiah, we see what he says. Everyone that keeps the Sabbath will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. For mine, ho- mine house shall be called and house of prayer for how many people? All people. That's what Isaiah said. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath, I'll bring where? To my holy mountain. And my uh, house of prayer shall be called or uh, uh my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people nowhere in the entire new testament or old testament does the bible refer to the seventh day week of the week as the s- sabbath of the jews nowhere in fact we we find in the um new testament mark chapter 2 and verse 27 jesus says for the sabbath was made for the jews is that what he says no are the jews the only busy people in the world Are the Jews the only people created by God in the world? Are the Jews the only people that would do well to remember that He is our creator? No. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. In fact, Exodus chapter 20, that verse we just read, says the seventh day is the Sabbath, not of the Jews, but the Sabbath of who? So let's just get that straight, right? It's God's day. It's God's day. And he shared it with us. It's the Sabbath of the Lord, your God. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 8, For the Son of Man is Lord even of what? Even the Sabbath day. Why? Because he's the creator of the Sabbath. He's the one that made the Sabbath. He is the, he is the Lord of the Sabbath day. John the Revelator, when we turn to the book of Revelation... We, we find that um, he speaks of the, uh, the, uh, being in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Remember that? Being in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And that, I believe, is referring to the day that Jesus said he was the Lord of. He was in the Spirit on the Sabbath day. There's nothing in the text to indicate that it would have been any other day. Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 12. Moreover also I gave them my Sabbaths to be a what? What does it say? a sign between them and me that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies who? Them. You see, my friends, God does not only have the power to make a day holy, He also has the power to make a people holy. This is the good news of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is saying, look, if God can create, if He can speak and it's done, if He can, if he can make this world, and He has then the power to also make a new heart in you and me. I am... I am the creator, I made you, I can remake you. The Sabbath, he says, I gave them my Sabbath to be a sign that they might remember that I am the Lord, their God, that sanctifies them. Is it it so that we can make God love us more by keeping the Sabbath? No, not at all. It's so we can remember how powerless we are and how powerful he is. How powerful he is that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. And so we we see that throughout the scriptures, from the book of Genesis on, from the very beginning, the Sabbath was meant as a gift for mankind. But did you know that even after sin is finished in this world, even after God sets sets up His kingdom, which will last forever, did you know that the Sabbath is still going to be a gift for mankind? I mean, it would make sense, right? Because God gave it to mankind before there was sin. Why wouldn't it be just as valid a gift after there's no more sin, right? And so we find in the new earth, there's also going to be the gift of the Sabbath. Isaiah 66, verses 22 and 23. I don't think that shows up quite there, but um, I believe it goes on. Isaiah 66, verse 22, For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make remain before me, says the Lord so shall your seed and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me, says the Lord. Throughout all of eternity, we're going to have a special gift from Jesus. And that's, we can stop what we're doing and we can go spend time with our Savior. Isn't it amazing? I can't wait. Listen, no cathedral on earth compares to what it must be in the New Jerusalem. When the saints from from all corners of the new earth, pour into the city, into those 12 gates, and make their way right down there to the very throne room of God. Can you imagine? We can't. The biggest stadium on earth doesn't compare. Can you imagine the choir? Can you imagine lifting your voices and singing with, with all kinds of instruments? We know there's instruments. The Bible talks about the instruments. It's going to be absolutely amazing. No one's going to get tired of it. You think you're going to be like, man, do I have to go to New Jerusalem this week? <laughs> no, it's going to be like, man, I can't wait. I can't wait to go down and worship face-to-face with my Redeemer and Savior and King. I can't wait to hear the, what the choir is going I can't wait to be singing in the choir. Oh, what an amazing, amazing promise. Throughout all of eternity, from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come together to worship before me. What about Jesus? If we want to understand more about the Sabbath, we can look at the example of Jesus. Jesus, it says in Luke chapter 4 and verse 16, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as his custom was, so this tells us what his habit was. This was his custom, right? What did Jesus typically do? What was his custom? As his custom was, it says, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. He stood up to read. Now, no one was questioning in those days, well, is this still the seventh day that God created? Do you think Jesus would have set people straight if they had somehow overslept and gotten a day off in their weekly cycles? Yeah, I think he would have. The Bible says, as his custom was, he went in the synagogue, and he went unto the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. This was his habit. This was his custom. So we find that from Adam to Moses... We don't find any uh, change, we don't find any record or any reason to believe that time would have been lost sight of because it would have been corrected when God gave the Ten Commandments, right? If somehow between creation and Moses' day, uh, time had been lost sight of, it would have been corrected. From Moses down to Christ's time, we don't find any evidence that there's any ambiguity as to which day of the week Jesus went to the synagogue to worship on. He went to to the worship on the Sabbath day. From Jesus' time, we go down to the disciples, and I want to just mention that if the disciples who are all Jews by background, right, if the disciples had had any type of a news to tell the Christian church as earth-shattering as we're going to worship on another day other than the Sabbath, it would have been the headline of the New Testament, don't you think? I mean, do you see how much struggle they had over circumcision? Circumcision was a huge issue because the Jews thought to be saved, you had to be circumcised, right? And Paul said, look, the ceremonial law was nailed to the cross. The the, the requirements contained in ordinances, it says in Colossians chapter 2, have been nailed to the cross. There's no longer a barrier between Jew and Gentile. We looked at that last night, right? We looked at that. So, but this was a fight. Let me tell you, they were about ready to disfellowship Paul. You read Acts chapter 15, Acts chapter, I believe, 20 or so. You read these chapters, how they were, they were determined that Paul should stop preaching if he wasn't going to do what they thought they had to do as Jews. Now, you think if they had changed the day of the week, this wouldn't, this wouldn't have been the headlines? They would have had to have said it very explicitly, and there certainly would have been something Said about it. The Jews, however, since that time have continued to observe a seven day week, right? And so when people ask me, how can we know for sure that the Sabbath is still the Sabbath that God blessed, still the day that God blessed, I can simply say, I, I can say with great confidence, the seventh day of the week today is still the seventh day of the week when Jesus was here. It's very unlikely in my mind that a whole nation of, of Jews would have overslept the whole day and somehow messed up their calendars. Um, and lost track of time in that kind of a way. The identity of the day was never questioned when Jesus was here. The only controversy arose about how he kept it. Remember, the disciples and he were often accosted by the Jewish leaders. They had made all kinds of rules and regulations requiring people to do certain things. I mean, it was ridiculous. You, could, you couldn't carry a burden on the Sabbath because that was work. So therefore, if you were to have a handkerchief in your hand walking your 200-yard Sabbath day's journey or so, it's just a shortened distance, then you would be carrying that which would be work, right? But if you were to sew it onto the outside of your garment, then it wouldn't be work at all. And you could carry it. By the way, what if you had to travel farther than a Sabbath day's journey, only about a stone's throw away? What if you had to go farther than that on the Sabbath? Well, there's a reason they had a way around that too. They had decided that, you know, it only made sense that you could go a Sabbath day's journey one way, right? Um, and, you know, typically you would go, to, go well, you, after you ate a meal you could come back, right? You could go more. And so they just said if you keep some food in your pocket go a Sabbath day's journey, and then eat your sandwich. Now you can go another Sabbath day's journey. Now, was was any of that in the Ten Commandments? They just made this stuff up as they went. It was all kinds of senseless regulations, man-made rules they surrounded the Sabbath with. You think Jesus was worried about all those man-made rules? Not at all. And so the... The disciples and he were always getting into trouble the pharisees were saying why are you doing that on the sabbath you're even healing on the sabbath and what did jesus say it is lawful to do good on the sabbath days right jesus went about doing good on sabbath that's what the sabbath was made for resting of course but helping people is lawful on the sabbath day it is it is a it is what jesus did he went about doing good on the sabbath day Now, if we have any question about how the disciples kept the Sabbath, we can look at Luke chapter 23 and 24. I'm not sure exactly why my text disappeared there on the screen. I know it was there, but we're looking at Luke chapter 23 and 24. If you have your Bibles, turn with me there. Luke 23 and 24. And uh, we're going to look at the story of the crucifixion at the cross. And we're going to see how the Sabbath is made very plain here. Uh, Which day of the week it is. Now, um, we find that Jesus has just died. This is the end of Luke chapter 23. There's a rich man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea that has a tomb that he offers for the use of Jesus. He actually went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and they bring it down and they put it in this brand new tomb where no one had ever been buried before. Verse 54, Luke chapter 23 and verse 54, are you there? All right. And it says on that day and that day was the preparation and the Sabbath drew on. So which day of the week is this? Which day of the week did Jesus die on? Friday. Friday. We're all pretty clear about that. In fact, I don't think there's any Christians we even have in well the largest um, Christian denomination, the Roman Catholic Church and many other Christians also observe Good Friday, right? Um, well it's I mean in some ways it's not good, but it was the day in which Jesus died, right? And so, here you have the day was the preparation, Sabbath drew on, and um, the women also, verse 55, which came with him from Galilee, followed after and beheld the sepulcher and how his body was laid, and they returned and prepared spices, anointments, and rested the Sabbath day according to the commandment. So, Jesus died on, on Friday. What did the disciples do the next day? Rested. What was that day called? The Sabbath day. Rested according to what? The commandment. Now, this is crystal clear evidence that the disciples were still keeping the Sabbath day after the death of Christ verse 20, chapter 24 verse 1 now upon the very first i'm sorry upon the first day of the week very early in the morning they came unto the sepulcher now which day would be the first day of the week First day of the week, they came early in the morning, they, they, uh, bringing the spices which they had prepared and certain others with them, and they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher. They entered, and they found not the body of the Lord Jesus. Why was He not in the tomb? Because He was alive, right? Jesus was not kept in Joseph's tomb. Jesus was alive because Jesus had conquered sin and death, and Jesus was ascending to the fathers, the first fruits of those who slept. Jesus was... He was a, a King of kings now and Lord of lords. He was going to be our savior and our high priest in the heavenly sanctuary. Listen, this is very good news, right? But in this story, we find the weekend of the, of the terrible disappointment of the cross, the resting of the Sabbath according to the commandment, and then the first puzzling and then glorious news of the resurrection. We find this illustrated here right right here in Luke chapter 23 and Luke chapter 24. So what are the order events? Friday the preparation day, Jesus is crucified. Sabbath, the Saturday, the Sabbath day, he's resting in the tomb. His disciples are also resting according to the commandment. Sunday, the first day of the week, he's alive and they are going down because it's a work day. They're going down to embalm the body of Jesus. The Sabbath is over. Now, some might say, well, yes, but that's because they didn't know yet they were supposed to be keeping in another day and this is where i have to just be honest with you i i'm i'm open i want to know the truth friends don't you i want to know the truth if there was some evidence that jesus afterwards instructed the disciples now you no longer observe saturday now you need to observe sunday i would be the first to want to know it right but it's not there it's not in the new testament anywhere and uh, as, in fact, as we look at the teachings of Jesus, this is backing up a little bit before the cross, but He's going to be teaching about a time after the cross. That would be relevant, right? Jesus, on Ma- in Matthew 24, He's talking about the signs of the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the world. So He's talking about either a time still future or at least a time a lot future from His day, that time when He's speaking, right? Does that make sense? He's either describing a time yet in our future or at least 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed. And this is what he said. Talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, he says in Matthew 24, verse 20, Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Did Jesus expect his disciples to still be keeping the Sabbath 35, almost 40 years after his crucifixion? Absolutely, he did. He said, Pray that your flight would not be in the winter or on the sabbath day you can't really rest and enjoy enjoy the uh, recreation that god wants us to have if you're fleeing for your life can you and so he says um, even though he knew this was going to be well after the cross he says pray that your flight be not in winter or on the sabbath day destruction of jerusalem would not happen for many years until 70 AD. What about the disciples? What about the apostles? Is there any record of how they kept the Sabbath? In fact, there is. If we look in the book of Acts, there are many different instances we can look at. We can see that the disciples had a habit, a practice. It says in Acts chapter 17, verses one and two, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. What did they do? Verse two, Paul, as his manner was, remember Jesus had a custom? Paul had a custom too, right? As his manner was, he went into them and three Sabbath days reasoned uh, with them out of the scriptures. Now, some people have said to me, and I appreciate, I mean, it's good to ask these questions. What if he was just going to the synagogue because that's where the Jews were and he was trying to reach the Jews? Don't you think that's a fair question? It's a very fair question, very good question, uh, a very, very astute question. I appreciate those types of questions, but actually the Bible answers that question. Aren't you glad when the Bible has answers to our questions? I'm so thankful that it's not what I say or what I think or what my teachers or what uh, books I read say, but I can get my answers from the Word of God itself. That's what I want. That's what I want. I want to see God's Word speaking to me. Acts chapter 13, we find a similar situation where Paul was preaching on the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now again, it could be that he was just there because that's where the Jews were. But there weren't just Jews there, there were Gentiles there too, because this is what the record says. Acts chapter 13, verse 42, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now, if, if Paul, even though it's not recorded in the New Testament, if Paul knew something that we don't know, that Jesus had changed from Saturday to, su- to Sunday or to some other day for the, if you weren't a Jew, you could go to worship another day, don't you think Paul would have said, wait a minute, you're Gentiles, Right? Why don't you just come tomorrow? We'll worship. We'll have, is there anything wrong, by the way, is there anything wrong with worshiping God on any day of the week? No, absolutely not. The Bible says in Acts chapter 2 and 3 and 4 that the disciples every day were meeting and breaking bread from house to house. They were just having so much fun, fellowshipping with one another. They were going, oh, let's go to your house tomorrow and study the Bible. Let's go they were, listen, there's nothing wrong with that at all. But us doing that doesn't make a day blessed or holy, does it? No, it doesn't at all. That's only, only God can do that. So the Gentiles asked that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. And the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of the Lord. When did Paul have them come back? The next Sabbath. Jews and Gentiles alike, nearly the whole city. Wouldn't it be awesome if in any town, even in Dalton, if Paul were to come and the whole city were to come together to hear the word of God preached? Wouldn't that just be amazing? I wish we could see that happening. Um, boy, if we just loved God's word more, um, what 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 blessings we could have! In fact, if we look at the biblical record, Paul held eighty-four meetings on the Sabbath in the Book of Acts. And this is counting the several years that he was in one location. It says every week he reasoned with them. Eighty-four times there's evidence on the Sabbath day, the seventh day Sabbath, God, uh, Paul uh, held meetings on the on um, the seventh day of the week, the Sabbath. In fact, from Genesis to Revelation, we find the Sabbath, God's commandments, sort of like a golden thread that we can just follow all the way through Scripture, through the stories of God's people, even through Revelation all the way to the future, like Isaiah said, throughout all of eternity. The Sabbath is a blessing, a gift to mankind. In Revelation 14 and verse 12 says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So when we get to Revelation chapter 13, when we see this challenge, the beast is saying, worship me, right? Worship me. And if you don't want to worship me, worship the image that I'm going to create. What does God say? No, worship the creator. Worship the creator. And in that command, in that command in Revelation 14, we find the language lifted directly out of the fourth commandment. You think God could make it any clearer? if we're looking to understand the book of Revelation, if we're trying to see what God is trying to say to us, I think it's pretty clear. You and I are being called by our Creator to worship Him in the way He's asked us to, to worship Him, to remember, to remember that we came not from, a, from, a, some, from slime and some cells, but we came from the hand of a loving God, who has a purpose for our lives, has a reason for our existence. And one of these days, just like Daniel, just like his three friends, just like Abel and and Joseph and and Elijah and the rest, one of these days we too will have to make the decision, who are we going to obey? Who are we going to worship? Whose side will we be on? Will we be on the side of the, the Antichrist power of Revelation 13? Or will we be worshiping the Creator? as we're asked to in Revelation 14. You know, the same Jesus, the same Jesus who asks us to worship Him, stretched out His hands and died for us. He loves us. We don't don't worship Him so that He'll love us, friends. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus loves us and He saves us freely by His grace. And all He asks is, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, worship me. Fear God. Don't fear man. Glorify Him in your life. I want to be a part of those people that are worshiping the Creator in the last days. How about you? I know one thing. We may not understand everything tonight. There's a lot of of things we've covered. We're going to be answering some of those questions tomorrow night in tomorrow night's lecture. But everyone tonight, I think, should at least be able to say, Lord, whatever it means... When you come again, I want to be worshiping you as the Creator. Can you say that tonight? Amen. I want to be worshiping you as the Creator, whatever that means. Father in heaven, you've seen these hands. Lord, there are people in Dalton right here in this room who, who want from the deepest of their heart of hearts, who want to be found worshiping their Creator in the last days. Lord, we realize there are deceptions We're told that if possible, even the very elect would be deceived. But we just say, Lord, keep us safe. Help us to follow your word. Help us to study your word. Help us to see what you're trying to say to us throughout your word. And help us, Father, to just be falling more and more in love with Jesus every day. Lord, help us. Help us to love to spend time with him. Especially time with him that is blessed for that purpose especially on that day which He has set aside, that we can worship Him, that we can do good for other people, that we can spend time with family and friends and fellowship. Oh, Lord, I just want to pray that each person here, You'd continue to bless them and guide them and keep them, that we might one day walk in those streets of gold, that we might press our way toward the new Jerusalem and enter one of those 12 gates and and stream right on down into that throne room and see You face-to-face and worship You. Lord, that's our desire. That's our prayer. We want to be there. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.